for companies who are committed to having people in the office five days, I would say, why? There's just a lot of misperceptions and fixed mindsets about productivity, and they're not true. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. The way we work has changed forever and highly skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top talent to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Labby, Chief People Officer at TopTel. In March of 2020, a New York Times headline declared simply, we live in Zoom now. Before then, many of us never imagined all the ways video conferencing would be involved in our lives. Holiday dinners when we couldn't be with family, virtual happy hours, we saw doctors on Zoom, attended weddings and graduations, and of course, Zoom school. I'm honored to have my guest today, Jody Rabinowitz, the head of talent and organizational development at Zoom Video Communications. She's overseen tremendous growth at the company, to say the least. Just before the pandemic, Zoom had recently gone public and was averaging 10 million meeting participants a day. By April 2020, 300 million people were logging into Zoom every day, and the company had to scale quickly to meet the customer demand. Under Jody's leadership, Zoom has almost tripled its team to 6,300 employees around the world. At the same time, the company is known for maintaining a cohesive company culture and is regularly rated a best place to work on sites like Glassdoor. Jody, I'm so excited to talk to you and hear what these last couple of years have been like. Thank you. Thank you so much for having Michelle. Such a pleasure. Sure. So first off, let's go back to the school days. How did your degree in sociology and master's in social work, both from University of Pennsylvania, um, how did they prepare you to lead people? Like many people with BAs, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I had an opportunity to submatriculate into the graduate school of social work while I was an undergrad at Penn, which meant I would postpone my entry into the real world by one year. I thought getting a generic people degree could never hurt me. Um, and I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But I, I have to say that um, the roots of social work and all of the so-called clinical questions that you ask to uncover, you know, what's what's really going on. I just got really strong muscles around asking those questions. And so when I ask those kinds of maybe it feels very personal questions in the workplace, it's obviously in the spirit of doing good and trying to be helpful, but I'm not afraid to go there and if you create a trusting environment, people aren't afraid to give, you know, speak truth so that you can again, obviously help. I'm just sort of hardwired to ask all kinds of questions in, a, in an assessment or sort of a clinical interview. The, the roots of um, those social work skills, understanding the psychosocial environment where somebody, you know, you know, is, is living, working and experiencing um, is just kind of part of my DNA. Yeah. It's funny because I went to college not knowing what I wanted and ended up um, with a degree in political science, thinking I might go to law school. 
So it was definitely around that. I'm not afraid to ask the hard questions and think too, but um, I definitely understand and and feel that from you. So I have a very similar approach. So prior to joining Zoom, you were Assistant Chief Human Resources Officer at the Met in New York, where you focused on employee well-being. So that seems like a very exciting and glamorous job. So can you tell us some of the main tenets of what you did there and and all about employee well-being? People literally like sell their firstborn to work at the Met. I mean, when you post a job uh, at the Met, LinkedIn floods 2,400 resumes in less than 12 hours. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. People have a real affiliation and love for that place. Um, But for me, I was... You know, it, it was cool, but I was really more interested in the opportunity to make an impact. And it was such a different place. Most of my career, as you know, was in banking. What's interesting about the Met is people ordinarily don't leave, definitely not the curatorial staff. And what I've learned between financial services and, you know, investment banking or asset management or, you know, you know, the Costume Institute or, you know, Asian art or Zoom, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, people are people and people dynamics happen everywhere and people bring their histories and their experiences to work and that all plays out. It just was a particularly beautiful house to help people, you know, feel, you know, rewarded and uh, excited about their about their roles there. How do you do that when people are there for so long, right? I mean, a lot of those folks are lifers. This is their dream job, right? So yeah, I mean, um, and he has a real range of staff. I mean, you've got the curatorial staff. Yes, some of them are literally are there their entire careers, but there's also people that put together the exhibitions. There's people to put together the books that go with the exhibitions. They're scientists, so they're not curators, but they literally are looking at material and telling under a microscope and telling you like where the soil is from. So it's it's such a range of really diverse people and and diverse places in their career. It's hard it's hard to leave the Met. It's got incredible resources and it's iconic. All right. Well, let's pivot a little. So what drew you to Zoom and on becoming what I've now heard is a Zoomie? The former chief HR officer um, was my boss like 15 years ago. She was uh, brought on to get Zoom ready to go public and needed somebody to also get Zoomies ready for going public. And so I was brought on to build everything. Um, I was employee number 1513. We now, like you said, have over 6,300. Yeah. She, she brought me here. You know, sometimes when I get a call from a headhunter, they're like, how'd you get to zoom? I would have never like, had you go to zoom, but again, people, different house, same people, different house. Although this is a really different house because it's my first sort of Silicon Valley tech gig. And it's just so much fun the uh, employees are really engaged and excited and I learn a lot from them. So you joined in 2019, right before a pandemic hit and, you know, right before Zoom became everyone's office. I, for one, tell everybody, like I live in in Zoom, like my whole day is in Zoom and Slack. That's all I do every day. Um, So how has the company changed since the pandemic and this massive 
oh my God, everyone switched to Zoom. So 15% of Zoom's workforce was remote pre-COVID. I, I was one of them. And just like everybody else in that day in March, we all went home. And so even though we're fluent in our tool, right, they, everybody just went home. And then since then, I think three quarters of our workforce has joined. So that three quarters has never stepped foot in a Zoom office, which is pretty incredible. When you walked into a Zoom office, the culture was palpable. I mean, it was cheery and warm and affiliative. And, you know, we have a happy crew, which is a fully voluntary you know, fleet of, of employees that do all kinds of activities, philanthropic and otherwise, just to just keep other Zoomies happy. We've had to really sort of double down and make sure that that same warmth and affiliation and connection comes through, through our, through our, through our tool, which we do. It's changed because in the olden days, everybody had access to everybody and it just by mere size, um, it's bigger and there are more layers. It's not bureaucratic. Um, it's still very, very flat. Just as companies grow, there needs to be a little bit more structure. It's so not structured like a typical corporate, you know, fortune 50 company, but it's not the wild, wild west either. It's not 50 people in a room. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been interesting to toggle between keeping the nimbleness of the culture, but also having to put some processes in place just because we're bigger. So the longest tenured Zoomies, and by now I'm like considered a longest, long tenured Zoomie, um, I think have more, have seen more change um, than people that, that have joined during the pandemic because they remember when, right? We have all hands calls twice a month. Our screen holds just under a thousand faces. And so I just remember the day where we couldn't do it anymore by a meeting, you had to do a webinar. And so I can imagine what it's like for people that were there even three years before me. So TopTel is 100% remote and we always have been for the almost 12 years we've been around. So we've never had an office and we've always been remote. And because we're all over the world, we have all hands once a month. And last month, even though we have you know over 1,300 people, we got, it depends, their time zones, they're not all yeah. on, they watch the recording later. We were just, we hit like 982. And I was like, oh God, and I'm watching the number go up. And so this morning I had to test the new webinar because we have an all hands meeting tomorrow. Yep. And we have to do this new feature where I, yeah. I'm the host and it, and I can't see everyone's face. It's nice. We're spoiled with that visual cue, aren't we? Um, now, when someone says, can I, can we talk on the phone? I'm like, no, let's have a Zoom call. I'm just so used to this. Yeah. We don't have anybody's phone numbers here. So, when, you know, so here it's just like, hey, can you chat? And it's a Zoom link. It's never a phone. Yep. I can't remember the last time I had a business call on my phone. Definitely. We're all very wired at this moment to, 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 to use this format. You know, we've continued to triple in the three and a half years that I've been here as well. And, and you clearly are in massive growth mode. What are you doing to keep the culture alive with everybody remote? We are very deliberate. 
happy crew events. We have something called Zoom Rendezvous where you show up and you're spontaneously on a screen with six people and they give you a question to answer for 15 minutes and you know they put you in a Zoom room. We use our backgrounds a lot to um, connect with people, tell stories, uh, share something about our lives. I've made all my job offers with my Zoom background. You know, somebody shows up and it says you're hired. Our onboarding oh, is, that. yeah, it is really fun. All about culture dipping. So really getting people immersed in the pride um, and the privilege it is to you know, help the world stay connected in, in the midst of this crisis. I mean, we were the first adoption on Zoom, you know, weddings and unfortunately funerals, birthday parties, people connecting um, with roommates that they wouldn't have ordinarily connected with, you know, if it weren't COVID and they weren't in lockdown. And so there's a lot of pride that goes with that. We have some, we have, um, we have over 700 chat channels. Um, there's an inspiring stories chat channel that's very, very active. Again, all culture building. Um, the best chat channel is the dog lovers chat channel. We have pet although lovers we, right there with we, you. That is so our although there might the cat, lovers channel might think theirs is better than the dog lovers channel. I don't know. I'm not on the cat lovers channel, but um, we have a um, not so serious book club for people that, you know, read it, listen to it, like maybe read half of it, but just want to join. So we, we use the chat to build community and we make sure that we have a lot of FaceTime. Um, so we'll open a meeting with, you know, a story instead of get, right, getting right to the agenda, like the things that, you would do if you were sitting around a conference room waiting you know, to start the meeting. We are very thoughtful about it because we recognize that this is hard for some people. Right. You seem to bring a level of authenticity and a sense of humor to the culture wearing, I've seen pictures of sunflower hats and shark hats in company meetings. You use your props well. Um, so why are authentic connections important, especially for remote work? Oh, you missed my, um, I showed up as the career fairy the other day with purple wings and a wand. Um, <laughs> because sometimes and all hands calls, it's just sort of like ordinary business. So I, I'll do anything I can to capture people's attention. That is what I love about Zoom because I can be my authentic self. I think if I showed up at the Met wearing a sunflower hat, because we have something called Zoom Bloom, that's what we call our development cycle, I probably would have gotten in trouble. It's just a really fun culture in that way. And you can be a little, I've been a little kooky because I am a little kooky and it just seems to work. As a result of this pandemic, I think people are seen in their authentic settings, whether they like it or not. As you know, pets, kids, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, you know, people in, you know, maybe accidentally in their underwear. Like we've seen it all. We've seen people's kitchens. We've seen their bedrooms. We've seen their closets, their bathrooms. So there is just something about being in your own home, surrounded by the things that make you happy and sharing that um, creates a level of intimacy and authenticity that um, just didn't exist before. Those barriers are gone. Um, I completely and, agree with you. Yeah. And as you know, when people can um, talk about a work strategy while they're petting their cat, they're just so much happier and, and smarter. 
I don't know what the future is going to bring. I certainly think it's hard to go back. And we could talk about this later, like five days. Some people are forced to do it. But what I hope doesn't happen is if one day we all have to go back, that we don't lose what we saw, like like we that the barriers don't go back up, um, that we remember what it was like to talk to somebody, you know, while they were bouncing their kid in their lap. Yeah. And I, it's funny, I, I get interviewed a lot because TopTel is, isn't always has been this 100% remote company. And so people say, you know, when the pandemic hit, it was, how do you go remote? Like, what do you do? How do we, how do, we do this? And I've said repeatedly, I actually find it's more intimate to be in a remote setting. I'm not going to the kitchen to get a cup of coffee and be like, hey, how was your weekend? Or you know, saying hello to someone and passing in the ladies' room. It's, you know, every conversation is more focused and purposeful and you're paying attention. And like you said, like dogs are barking, doorbells are going off, all of that stuff. And so you really see people in their comfortable, natural setting instead of the professional environment that you have to put on somewhat of a face for at times. No doubt. We have a whole thing here at Zoom, right? Um, In terms of equity, um, everybody has an equal square. Everybody's ostensibly paying attention. The extroverts talk, the introverts chat, or they annotate and draw, or they, you know, put up a reaction. You know, this setting creates this, it just makes, it, there's a safety net in a weird way that enables you to open up. And not to mention, as you said, Michelle, like the comfort of your own home. You're not sitting in an office wearing a suit and stockings. Oh my God, stockings and and heels, please. Who's comfortable then? Yeah. I hope I hope it never goes back yeah. to that. I, you know, and one of the things that we've spent a lot of time on at TopTel is onboarding. So really making sure this 100% remote onboarding is buttoned up and people still feel that welcome, even though they're not seeing people in an office. And I know that you've developed a pretty robust onboarding program so what are the most important points or the factors that you considered in making this successful? It's all about culture dipping. So yes, your benefits are important. Yes, your IT setup is important um, and that gets done. But the initial day is all about pride and Zoom, getting to, we break people out and we um, have them get to know each other. You know, what does it mean to deliver happiness? Give us your Zoom elevator. We literally put them in a background with an elevator. Give us your elevator's pitch. Um, learn about the history of the company. Listen to Eric's story. Listen to the, you know, we've, there's lots of like fun commercials about Zoom. There's lots of fun stuff in the media about Zoom because we're fun. Um, and so really getting people in touch with that sort of soulful place and confirming they made the right decision. So again, it's not that it's, of course, it's important to do your I-9 form, but um, it's almost secondary to the dipping. And then we 30, 60, 90, 120, and 365 days send you a push message. um, And we send your manager a push message not about performance, but prompting questions about how's it going? How are you feeling as part of the culture? What are some of the employee resource groups you've joined? Um, What are you learning? So for a year, we are actively engaging managers and employees to have those connections. I know 
that Zoom is addressing problems with hybrid meetings using this new Rooms conferencing product. I think it's called Zoom Rooms. So in the olden days, you remember in the olden days, I had that star chat thing in the middle of the conference room and like everybody was around the conference table and there was one person on the TV. There's no, that, that doesn't happen anymore. Now you have conference room, everybody has a box. And so there isn't this sort of like chatter in the conference room and then somebody remote that you can easily forget about. It is just like this experience to ensure that equity and inclusion and, you know, sense of belonging. Um, and so we had it before, but it's, you know, even better now. And it'll be utilized a lot more now that uh, companies are hybrid. I listened to a podcast where you said companies might be challenged to find employees that want to work in an office five days a week, which I completely agree with you. What advice would you give to these companies that are thinking about leaning into a hybrid or fully remote model or something in between? Even when I talk to people who are looking for jobs, they're like, uh, it, it, it says, it doesn't say remote, doesn't say remote, doesn't say remote, you know, on LinkedIn. And there's a, a sense that like the employee has control and the employee is able to make choices. And if the choice is flexibility or no flexibility and being in office five days, then you might miss out on the good talent, right? So I guess for companies who are committed to having people in the office five days, I would say, why? What, what do you think is gonna happen you know, five days live that couldn't happen two days live or couldn't happen somebody five days working from home. There's just a lot of misperceptions and fixed mindsets about productivity and if they're not true. Um, now, if we were molding a car together, we had to physically mold it, that's different. Um, and I'm not saying that employees don't need the, you know, a human, like a touch the hand, get in a room, you know, pass somebody by in, in the coffee, you know, the pantry. It, the fallacy of productivity only happening in the office is, I think is blown out of the water, absolutely blown out of the water. You can declare um, hybrid or you can declare office. Um, most of our people have declared hybrid. So choosing to go in when they wanna go in, so a couple of my people are in the Denver office and they said it was so fun to be there, but they couldn't get any work done. Like it was distracting to, you know, have everybody around. Everyone is used to hunkering down. I mean, undoubtedly, we've put in more than a 40 hour week. Um, and I don't care when people get their work done. They just have to get it done. And they do. Um, so if there is a company that is number one, committed to five days a week, I challenge them why. And um, for companies that are considering hybrid is to assess like, what was it like during the pandemic when nobody came in? What was the productivity like? What was the output like? What was the community like? Um, and and assess from there. My guess is the output was still pretty, pretty phenomenal. Um, barring, you know, the stress that and pain people were experiencing, which everybody was. Well, there's a new part of our language that I think will probably show up in the dictionary at one point called Zoom fatigue. That's a new word, right? We hear it all that, the time. It's a new word. We're glad we're not calling it the competitor's fatigue. Exactly. But that's okay. We'll take it. Yep. It just means that you need to shut off your camera from time to time 
or like at Zoom because our company cameras are always on. It's yes, just part yes, of our culture. Yep. Other other companies, not so much, right? And so it, it could be like this. Michelle, um, I'm going to shut my camera off. I'm eating a kale salad or I'm flossing my teeth. And we also need to be mindful that you're in control of your your well-being and you need to take a break. You need to walk away from the camera. You need to, we have, to, um, we have no meeting Wednesdays, uh, my favorite day of the week. So uh, there are no internal meetings. Um, there can be meetings with customers, but we really try to have no internal meetings. So the camera isn't on and we're, you know, writing or reading, I call it like the day I use my brain. Um, and it's, it's wonderful and we really guard it. So Zoom fatigue comes from, and we've all had it, right? Nonstop, like there are days where I am on the camera for 10 hours. It's not even about looking at myself. Like I don't even look at myself anymore, who cares? Um, but it's just that hyper-focus and you need to just dial it down. Yeah. I'm trying to do that after I looked yesterday and had 17 meetings and, you know, you have to be smiley because again, you're intentional and you're looking at somebody. So you have to like, it is. So I, I love that. I try to block out my Fridays because by Friday I'm done talking. So yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, you know, when you're at that tipping point, right? Absolutely. Um, But listen, you could be in an office and go from meeting to meeting to meeting and feel fatigued as well. Absolutely. You might as well be in your pajamas doing it, right? <laughs> yes. I want to talk a little bit about learning and development since that's your specialty and your sweet spot. Um, you were tasked with organizational development and you seem to bring so much of your experience in social work and understanding how people think to these programs. So can you tell us more about some of the work you're doing to develop your employees? I think you have a something for kids and you mentioned <laughs> Zoom Bloom earlier too. Yeah. Zoom Bloom is um, the idea of, you know, having developmental experiences and growing and, you know, looking at your performance. It's like sort of that cycle of always blooming and growing. It's our big umbrella catchphrase for, for growing and learning. Camp Zoomitude is what you're referring to, is a program that we did the first summer of lockdown. And our Zoomies were really tired they were working so hard, not to mention managing their kids. And summer camp was canceled, right? Everybody was stuck. And we partnered with an organization called um, Every Monday Matters, a wonderful organization. And we put together a camp curriculum focused on being a good human being. So we had two age groups and we had camp counselors meet with the kids. It was every week for six weeks, one hour like this. And then there was one hour self-directed activity, which gave Zoomy parents like two hours of respite. And then every other Friday we had a campfire. Um, and so the parents and the kids joined the counselors and we sang songs and played games. And it was really a nice gift to give to our Zoom, Zoomlets, our little Zoomies and the, the parents. Zoomlets? Um, and then by, by the next summer, people were like, I don't want to be in front of the screen. Like, I, I need to be outside. But um, it was it was a really fun program. Well, it's interesting because there, you know, I was going to ask you a question about generations since there's now five generations in the workforce all at the same time. Um, do the different generations need different types of development? 
I would say it's less about what they need. It's more about the way they consume it. Right. Um, when I grew up, when I was a kid, well, you know, we had five day leadership development training programs, five full days. That doesn't. Oh, fly by the me. way, I saw that you worked at CCL. Yeah. Which back in the day, I went back to one day. of those in Virginia. Yep. Um, and you know, five days, yep. five days of leadership development, all about you, 360, Firo B, like feedback. I think we when you get we did standing on logs and balancing and all yeah, of this everything. stuff. Too. It's exhausting. By the end of the five <laughs> days, your brain is fried. You know, the younger generations, I should say, because I'm kind of amongst the older employees, um, don't consume that way. They need to consume in smaller chunks. But do they need managerial leadership skills and self-awareness, like somebody who is more seasoned? Of course they do. It's just a matter of how they consume it. So we're really mindful of, we're always tinkering and adjusting time. Um, three hours is too long. One hour is too short. Like what's a sweet spot? Um, how interactive does it have to be? Um, we make sure that it's multimedia. There's a video, you're drawing, you're you know breaking out. Like it's like, it's, it's like a bonanza of, of ways to keep people engaged. It wasn't like that when we, no. when we were it was overloaded. in the classroom. It was right? like sit in a classroom and have this yeah. big thick binder. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> and flip it through it. Over. That's right. <laughs> so I read something very interesting about you. And it's that you studying to be a death doula. Now, I had no idea what that was, but maybe six months ago, I read a book by Jodi Picoult, whose main mm -hmm. character was a death doula. And so I was like, oh, I know what this is. I didn't know what this was before. So can you talk a little bit about like what drew you to that and, yeah. you know, what it is? So um, I had a very powerful experience with my mother's death 24 years ago. And we knew she was dying and she was in hospice. And basically for 45 minutes, I just talked to her and helped her sort of coached her to get to the other side. I knew she heard me. Um, the hearing is the last to go. And it, it was just really powerful. And um, I was very present and committed to um, making it easy. So she had permission to go. The, when the hospice nurse walked into the room, the first thing she said to me was, your mother is actively dying. And I was like, okay. I mean, it, it just felt very clinical. And then she got into bed with my mother on the other side and started to give her permission to die. And it was such a powerful experience because that was my job. And I was up for it, ready to do it, comfortable doing it committed to doing it, passionate about doing it, and privileged to do it. And there was this very intrusive um, feeling. And um, she probably didn't think she was doing anything wrong because often it's hard for families to let go of people, right? And so they do need permission and they do need um, to be soothed into letting go but I was doing it. And so I never forgot that experience. And uh, I've had a couple of experiences with death that are, have, are powerful and not scary. And so um, I wanted to 
I want, I want to do, I've been wanting to do this for a really long time and funny me, I'm like, okay, finally I have the time to do it. And I had, it was so popular. It was like a six month waiting list to get into the program. I am really comfortable with talking about death, confronting death. I think it's, I understand that it's hard, but it's such a missed opportunities for families to not talk about it and address it so that you understand exactly what somebody's wishes are so that you can carry out those wishes. And so if what a death doula does is really just help the dying and the dying's family uh, make the best possible experience. It is understanding their wishes, you know, where they want to be when they're dying. Do they want music playing? Do they want to be in front of the window? Um, how do they want to be remembered? What kind of legacy do they have? What kind of spirit, how, you know, how important is their spirituality? You know, so all of those things, like, are there, were there regrets in your life that you want to talk about, make peace with? I mean, not that it's like a therapy at the end, but just helping people get ready and just tie it up in a bow as much as they possibly can. It just makes you a better human being to be allowed to be part of somebody's ending. And you know, it's it's interesting because if you go back to where we started with the sociology and the social work, it seems yep. to kind of round out how you... Yep, and I never, I would have never right. then said, oh yeah, I want to do death and dying work. And I don't think, I, I don't want to leave Zoom and do death and dying work full time, but any way I can make my life richer and touch the hand of somebody else, I think, um, is just that's amazing. Pretty cool. That's really, Jody. This has been amazing. This conversation, but I would oh, love to add, wrap up with one final com- yes, one final question for you. What is your proudest moment as a leader? I think I could tell you where every single one of my direct reports are in my whole career. And they're all in amazing places. And the best thing you could do, the best thing I've done as a leader is make other good leaders. It has been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Once again, this has been the Talent Economy Podcast with Head of Talent and Organizational Development at Zoom, Jody Rabinowitz. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy. I'm your host, Michelle Labby. You can find much more information about the talent economy on staffing.com and toptel.com slash insights. Hubs for bold, comprehensive content featuring business thought leaders and authoritative research focused on the future of work.